Well, good morning, church. You're going to grab your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Genesis. Uh, We'll be looking this morning at chapter 44 together. And if you're looking at the black Bible in the chair that you're sitting in or in front of you, it should be found on page 38 of that text. Give us all a second to turn there together. I encourage you to keep your Bible open and follow along as we read and study and consider God's word to us this morning. What a gift. We have a God who speaks to us. Y'all there? All right. I used to live in Nebraska. I used to gag on Brussels sprouts. I used to wear biker shorts, but not anymore. Our home address, our pallets, our wardrobes can and do change over the years, sometimes for the better, thank goodness, right? But can people, can people change? As we've walked through chapters 42 and 43 and 44 of Genesis, that's the question that we've been asking about Joseph's brothers. Years before, in chapter 37, we saw how his brothers stripped him of his robe of many colors, a a symbol, a reminder of Jacob's favoritism towards him. They threw him in a pit, left him to die, and in the last minute changed their mind and decided to make a little profit off their brother and sold him into slavery in Egypt. Joseph's life, some of the best years of his life would, would be gone. And his life would never be the same after the betrayal and the wrong, the sin that his brothers had committed against him. And so we've seen Joseph wait year after year. And after a long wait, God finally raised up Joseph until he became second in command of Egypt. We saw how God then ordained a seven-year famine where in his providence it would bring his brothers from the land of promise in Canaan to Egypt, where Joseph would be face-to-face with his brothers who had betrayed him 20 years ago. Now Joseph, in that moment, no doubt wanted to reveal his identity. It's me. To embrace them. They've been apart for 20 years. But the question again was, hold up. (laughs) Had his brothers changed? Or or were they the same envious, self-centered brothers who were willing to throw someone under the bus for their personal gain as they had done with Joseph? Well, thankfully, in chapters 42... In 43, we saw God awakened their seared conscience. We saw how, by God's grace, they were set free from their previous envy. But had they really changed? Or were they just really good actors? Well, in chapter 44, we see Joseph's final test. 
where he establishes to see whether or not they had actually changed. And so we're going to walk through the text. There's three scenes that we're going to look at in the text. Scene number one, if you're taking notes. Scene number one, love confronts sin. Love confronts sin. This is verses 1 through 15 of chapter 44. Let's look at God's word together in verse 44, or chapter 44. Moses writes, then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sack with, sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men went, were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices practices divination? You You have done evil in doing this. And when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever the servants is found with it shall die, and we shall be your Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup that was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Pause there. Central to Joseph's final test here in chapter 44 was this silver cup that we're told was Joseph's. It was the cup that he drank out of, we're told. And it's mentioned that he uses it for divination. I don't think that's actually true. If you keep reading in the Old Testament, I think this is part of, it's part of the elaborate kind of test that is used to kind of uh, trick his brothers and, and not divulge his identity as their brother yet. Anyways, but the silver cup was central to this plan, and he, we're told that he slipped this silver cup into Benjamin's bag without them knowing it. The night before, they had enjoyed a feast with Joseph and were told that in early in the morning, they head out with their donkeys and they're headed home back to the land of Canaan. Now, this was quite a trip. They had cleared up this uh, disagreement with the Egyptian ruler who had suspected that they were spies and that they were dishonest, cleared it up. They had now bags full of grain that they were taking back to their families so that their families could survive in the midst of this famine. And most importantly, let's not forget, they had Simeon back. They got Simeon out of prison. And Benjamin, who they brought as the ruler had commanded them, 
It was with them. So they had Simeon out of jail, Benjamin in, in tow with them, and all of the other nine brothers were together on their way home. So on their way home, initially, think, they must have felt really good about this trip. It must have seemed like a glowing success. But before the Egyptian pyramids could disappear from their rearview mirror, the steward pulls them over. And he accuses them of stealing Joseph's personal silver cup. They were shocked. No way. Couldn't have happened. I mean, they, they, were, they had brought back the money from, that was mistakenly put into their bags from their first trip to Egypt. They had brought it back to make it right. Who in their right mind would now steal silver and gold from the second most powerful man in Egypt? No way. And so confident of their innocence, they offer their bags to be searched, and they even suggest the death penalty for the person who happened to steal the silver cup. Because no one of them could have, none of them could have done this. This was outrageous. And so the steward takes their bags, and with the oldest, he works down from the oldest to the youngest, kind of methodically, searching their bags. And so as these bags are being searched, the, the tension in the story rises because they don't know what's coming, but we as the readers do. So he searches the oldest. Reuben looks in the bag, no silver cup. Simeon's bag, no silver cup. Levi's bag, no silver cup. And down the line he goes until he gets to Benjamin's bag. Benjamin's bag is opened, looks inside, and the cup, the silver cup, was found in Benjamin's sack. Immediately, the brothers were told, tear their clothes. It's a, it's a symbol of distress and panic and mourning. Why was this happening again? We just had this happen the last time we were in Egypt. What is, what is God doing to them? Every time we leave Egypt, we're haunted by silver. What is it with silver? Silver. Was this because of the 20 pieces of silver that they had got as blood money for selling their brothers into slavery? What was God doing? And so disheartened, they pack up their donkeys and they return back to Egypt, back to Joseph's house. And we're told they fell before him to the ground. Once again, they're bowing before Joseph. And it's then we're told in verse 15 that Joseph confronts them. Verse 15, he confronts them with that question in verse 15, what deed is this that you have done? I mean, the spotlight is on them as he confronts their sin. Now again, listen, Joseph, Joseph with his veiled identity, they don't, know this is, they don't know this is Joseph. We do as the readers, but they still don't know this is their brother. And, and Joseph was likely tempted throughout these, these interactions, he was likely tempted to get even with his brothers who had wronged him, betrayed him, sold him into slavery. He would likely be tempted to stick it to his brothers. And he had the power to do it. And he had the right to do it. But he doesn't. We've seen that he, his heart, his desire is that he wants his brothers to live. He, his desire is for his family ultimately to be reconciled. Before, but before reconciliation can, can happen, sin needs to be confronted. 
as a good doctor must share the painful news about a patient's deadly illness, if that patient is to live, so too their sin, which had laid under the the covers for 20 years, their sin must be addressed if this relationship is to heal. Joseph's tests were painful. His question was painful, but it was loving. Proverbs 27 verses five and six says, better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Now, we need to understand that when we're confronting sin, confrontation can be done in an unloving way. You can do it in a really ungodly, unloving way, and so we must guard against that. Uh, there is that temptation in us to do it in an ungodly way. But, but friends, part of one of the observations we need to make from this text here is that whether in your parenting or in a friendship, whether it be in our relationship with each other as members of a church, we need to have a category where confrontation is not viewed as hatred. Not all confrontation is somebody hating on you. Sometimes confrontation is an act of love. That's what, that's, that's what the proverb is saying. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. The rebuke is parallel with love. An open rebuke can be an act of love. So friends, ask yourself, do you need the courage to lovingly confront sin in a family member's life, a friend's life, another church member's life that you're in a relationship with? Or, on the other side of this, do you need the humility to receive godly correction? Sometimes that's the harder thing to do, depending on your personality. Whether you're needing to give godly confrontation of sin or whether you need the humility to receive godly confrontation, let's pray as a church for God's help in this. God's wisdom to guide us to do this well on both sides of the correction. Because love confronts sin. Scene number two, love takes responsibility. So love not only confronts sin, love, scene number two, love takes responsibility. And we see this in verses 16 through 34 of the text. So let's look at the text together. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he, this is Joseph, said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, Please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, asked, saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. 
Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down to you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we found, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see this man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left to me. And I, one left me and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I, I, I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Now, there's a lot to take in in Judah's speech. It's one of the longest speeches in the Old Testament. But what, I want us to, before we dive into his speech, I want us to go back and look at the question that we heard in verse 15. When Joseph confronts his brothers, when he confronts sin, the question he asked is, what deed is this that you have done? Now, in reading this text, we might pass over this as a normal, typical question and not think twice about it. But I think that Moses is up to something that I want us to pause and consider because I think he's actually highlighting something for us. Old Testament scholars Lee and Harper have shown how the same Hebrew phrase that makes the question, what have you done? That Hebrew phrase, the same Hebrew phrase is used Eight times in the, old, in, in, in the book of Genesis. Eight times in the book of Genesis. And it's not a mistake. It's used eight times in the book of Genesis as a question to confront sin. And what's interesting is this is the eighth time. Now the first seven times we see the question asked in Genesis, what have you done? The first seven times we see this question, the response that we get in the book of Genesis is a bad one. And every time we see a poor response to this question that confronts sin, it builds the tension and builds the tension until we get to this eighth and final occurrence in 44 verse 15. So let me, let, me, let me give you a quick survey of the first seven instances we see this question, what have you done? The first time we see this question is in Genesis 3. You might remember this. After Adam and Eve rebel against God, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? You hear the question? What is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. 
So, first time we see this question, what is it that you have done? How do Adam and Eve respond? They shift the blame. It's the serpent's fault. It's the woman you gave me. Second time we see the question is after Cain kills his brother Abel in chapter 4. Then God comes to Cain and confronts his sin in Genesis 4, verse 10. God asks him, what have you done? Same Hebrew question. In response, Cain denies his responsibility. Am I my brother's keeper? And then he complains. Oh, my punishment is more than I can bear. Third time we see the question is when Abram pawns his wife off as his sister in order to protect himself. You might remember that in Genesis 12. But when Pharaoh finds out that he had lied to him, he comes to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 18, asking, what have you done? Spotlight on Abram. Abram's response, silence. He just leaves the room. Blame shifting, complaining, and just walking out of the room. I'm not, I'm not gonna deal with this. See ya. The fourth time we see the question is when Abraham pawns off his wife a second time. When Abimelech asks in Genesis 20, verse nine, what have you done? Abraham tries to rationalize his sinful behavior. He tries to spin it off as this was the reasonable thing to do. If I didn't do this, I would have died. He tries to rationalize his sin. The fifth time we see this question in in Genesis is Genesis 26, verse 10. What is this you have done? Is asked of Isaac this time. Isaac's answer, silence. The sixth time we see this question is in Genesis 29, verse 25. This time, Jacob asks Laban who wronged him, what is this you have done, Laban? It's met with Laban's excuses and his rationalization. The seventh time we see this question is in Genesis 31, verse 26. This time, Laban asks Jacob, what have you done? Each time the question is asked, it's confronting sin, it's putting spotlight on the sin, and this time Jacob, is, Jacob responds with rationalization. Excuses in order to make his sinful choice seem reasonable. You with me? Seven times, what have you done, is asked in the book of Genesis. And seven times, we see a poor, wrong response that dodges the question. Blame shifting, denial of responsibility, silence and walking out of the room, excuses, rationalization. I think what Moses is doing in the book of Genesis is showing us a pattern in the whole, if we step back and look at the whole book of Genesis, this phrase is showing us a pattern, a stair step of bad responses. And then we get to the eighth and the final time the question is asked. But this time, Joseph is asking the question in Genesis 44, verse 15. Same question. What deed is this that you have done? 
Now, up to now, we might expect another poor, wrong response when sin is confronted. But praise be to God, the brothers respond rightly. For the first time in Genesis to this question, they respond rightly when sin is confronted. Speaking on behalf of his brothers, Judah steps up, and in in verse 16, he responds on behalf of his brothers. Look at verse 16. He says, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are your Lord's servants. He's not rationalizing. He's not walking out of the room in silence. He's not blame shifting. He's asking for mercy. Mercy is when God does not give you what you deserve. That's why we sang the first song, Lord have mercy. Because if we get what we deserve, we're in trouble. Now, Judah is not suggesting, I think, that Benjamin actually stole the cup. I think, I think they realized that they didn't put the money in the, their sacks the first time. They don't know how it got there. They don't, I don't think that he's saying that Benjamin stole the cup either. I think, I think the idea is that, is that they're trying to put the pieces together and they realize that the, 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 the money mysteriously showed up in their bags twice and now the silver cup shows up twice. That would have been a, a stupid thing for them to do. And they, they put the pieces together and they realize that God, God was uncovering their guilt. God was exposing the guilt of their sin against Joseph. This was not about the cup. This was God confronting their sin that had laid under the surface for 20 years. And again, they don't blame shift. They don't make excuses. They don't rationalize. They don't walk away from the question. Instead, they confess their sin. And they set out to make right what they had done wrong. It's remarkable. When Katie, my wife, worked as a structural engineer in Chicago for seven years, uh, they, the, the firms that she would work for worked on big, multi-million dollar skyscraper type projects, which means that anytime you have a, a, a construction project, at some point in the construction process, something's going to go wrong. I mean, this is a big thing, right? So somebody might drop a brick and break a window or somebody gets injured or something happens, something goes wrong. But when something goes wrong in the construction process, the different groups that are involved, the architects, the engineers, the construction management company or the construction company itself will get together and they have to figure out liability. And when they get together, they immediately start pointing fingers and suing each other in court because no one wants to pay. (laughs) This is a big, they're trying to make a profit and no one wants to pay. I remember during one project, something did go wrong in one of their projects And so the different groups sat down together to try to figure out who's responsible, including Katie's boss, who was the manager of their construction company. And her boss happens to be a Christian. He's an elder at his church. And so this meeting starts, and you have the architects, the engineers, and the construction managers, and everyone's ready to start the blame game. Everyone's ready to file their lawsuits. When Katie's boss speaks up and says, you know, this is where we could have done better on this project. And I think this is where we got this one wrong. (laughs) And after everyone at the table probably fell out of their seats in shock, 
what was amazing is the temperature in the room just went down a notch. And they were able to talk with each other and find out a solution to the problem without ever going to court. Taking the responsibility for our wrong like that or like these brothers might seem as rare as a Loch Ness monster sighting. Who does it? What politicians do you see doing this? What leaders do you see doing this? What people do you see doing this in, in our world? It seems so rare. But friends, for the Christian, it should be normal. So friend, if you're a Christian, ask yourself, does taking responsibility for your sin, your part in the conflict, does that characterize you? Do you confess it? Do you agree with God about what you've done wrong? Do you seek to make right what you have done wrong? Or are you quick to blame shift, get defensive, make excuses, say nothing, just walk out of the room, ignore it? What characterizes you in the midst of a conflict? Well, after Judah confesses their guilt and they offer themselves to Joseph as his servants, Joseph says, no, I don't accept that. In verse 17, look at it, it says, far be it from me, Joseph says, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, the rest of you, go in peace to your father. What's he doing? Well, I think 20 years ago, they were, they were happy to betray their brother for their advantage. They didn't hesitate, even when it grieved their father. And so in this final test, Joseph gives them an out. He gives them a shortcut. He gives them a way out to test them. Would they save their own neck? Would they throw Benjamin under the bus to save their own neck? He's given them an out. I'll just take, the, I'll just take Benjamin. You all can go home safe and sound. And listen, the, the brothers, as we've seen them in Genesis so far, the Judah of Genesis 37 would have jumped at that because it was Judah who suggested, hey guys, let's sell our brother into slavery and make a little profit off this. The Judah of Genesis 38 would have jumped at this opportunity because he was willing to blame Tamar for her pregnancy when he was the one who got her pregnant. He was willing to kill her to get himself out of trouble. So that Judah would have jumped at this opportunity to save his neck and throw Benjamin under the bus. But Judah had changed. In his speech to Joseph in verses 18 through 34, this long speech where he recounts everything that has happened in this, in this interchange, this exchange between them going to Egypt and coming back, in this long speech, he mentions his father, 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 14 times. He mentions Benjamin, the boy, the youngest brother, 12 times. 
the repetition shows us where his concern is. His concern was for them. His concern was, was, was to save his father the grief and to save his brother Benjamin. His love burned so bright for them and not for himself that Judah was actually willing to offer himself as a substitute to save his brother Benjamin. Look at verse 32. He says, your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy, that's Benjamin, to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame. I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy. He offers himself as a substitute. Friends, I think one reason it's hard to take responsibility for our sin, one reason is because of this instinct of self-preservation. We want to save our life. If sin is uncovered, we automatically fear punishment, condemnation, payback. And so we, we prefer the darkness where we can kind of cover over our sin and hope that nobody finds out. But what's interesting is that instead of this selfish, self-preservation, Judah's actually willing to offer himself up in love. Judah is driven by a love that takes responsibility for others, which is what love does. Love takes responsibility for others for their good. And so we're left asking, hold on, that's not the Judah that we knew in Genesis 37. That's not the Judah that we knew in Genesis 38. What happened? How did he change? Again, friends, I think that Judah experienced God's grace. Remember in Genesis 44, verse 16, Judah has asked the question, how can we clear ourselves? How can we prove our innocence? And the assumed answer to his question is, he can't. His guilt is exposed. God knows his guilt. He knows his own guilt. There's nothing that he could do to clear himself. There's nothing that these brothers could do to clear themselves. No matter how many good works they do from here on out, you can't clear their past. They'd wronged their brother. They'd sinned against their brother. They'd betrayed their brother. And friends, it's a reminder for us that, that a righteous God, he will not sweep sin under the carpet because he will not compromise his justice. He is a just God and he will not compromise his character. But a righteous God did 2,000 years ago send his son, Jesus, to satisfy the demands of his perfect justice. You see, when Jesus began his ministry. John the Baptist sees Jesus coming over the, over the hill. And what does he say? He says, look, behold, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who will bear our sin. He will take our sin away. And so we, like Joseph's brothers, we need to remember and know this morning that we, in and of ourselves, we are guilty. We have sinned against our creator. We have sinned against a holy God so that we could do what we want, when we want. And friends, there is nothing that you can do to clear yourself. 
There is nothing I can do to clear my name. There is nothing that we can do to prove our innocence because we're guilty. But that's why Jesus came. Jesus, the sinless son of God, willingly, no one twisted his arm, willingly laid down his life as the lamb of God. In love, Jesus drank the cup of God's righteous wrath for the sinful rebellion of anyone who would trust in him. He drank that cup so that we would not have to drink the cup of God's wrath. Now listen, it is scary coming into the light of God with our sin. Because the the normal instinct in us is we fear condemnation, we fear retribution, payback. That's normal. But but part of what the gospel is saying to us, part of what this text is saying is, is is that for those who trust in Jesus, what you'll find if you come to Jesus with your sin, you'll find that he was condemned so that we could be accepted. On the cross, Jesus bore the blame and rose again so that those who trust in him could be justified. In other words, so that the guilty could be declared not guilty. Friend, if you're not yet a Christian, listen. I pray this morning that you would hear this as good news. You don't have to hide your sin. You don't have to pretend like you're a good person or good enough. You don't have to put a mask on every time you go out in public and say, I'm a good person. I'm good enough. Which, by the way, is exhausting because it's a lie. None of us are good. Every member of this church is not good in and of ourselves. We've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But for those who turn from their sin, for those who truly repent, and those who come to Christ in faith, those who trust in Christ and Christ alone, what you will find is not condemnation. You will not find payback, retribution. You will find mercy, you'll find grace, you'll find forgiveness. So friends, I urge you today, my non-Christian friend, don't, don't stay in the dark. Come into the light. Confess your sin. Admit your need for Jesus. Come to him in faith, and he will embrace you with open arms. And do that today, because today is the day of salvation. We're not promised tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Well, what if you are a Christian? Does, does that mean that Coming into the light is no longer scary? No. Even if you are a Christian today, it's still scary at times to come into the light when you've sinned. And to come into the light, it is scary to come into the light with our own sin. So, brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, you may still, we may still be tempted when we sin to blame shift to hide, to stay silent and walk away, put our head in the sand, ignore it, or make excuses for our sin. But I want to remind you, Christian, Romans 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So what do you have to fear then? 
What's keeping you in the dark, my, my brother and sister, with your sin? What are you afraid of? What am I afraid of in those moments? Well, sometimes we fear not the condemnation of God, we fear the condemnation of family and friends and our spouse. And what we do is we, we fear their condemnation more than we fear the condemnation of God. But friends, that is to cheapen God's grace and to act as if the bigger issue in this question is what people think of you more than what God thinks of you. And so let me say it again, brothers and sisters. If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. You have been adopted by God as his child. You have become a co-heir of the grace of God. You become an heir with Christ of all that is his. And so knowing that, we should take responsibility for our sin when we sin. We should confess it and we should seek to make it right. And what gives us boldness is the fact that God has already declared us just, innocent, not guilty. Friends, in chapter 42, Genesis 42, 43, 44, we've been asking if Joseph's brothers had changed or not. And in the end, Joseph had given his brothers a get out of jail free card. Just abandon, just abandon Benjamin. Just give him up to me. Let him go to jail. You can all return safely home. No questions asked. But they don't take the, they don't take the get out of jail free card. They refuse. And I think that when, when Joseph sees Judah offer himself in Benjamin's place, it becomes abundantly clear his brothers had changed. God had changed his brothers. Their repentance was real. So what would that mean? What would their repentance mean for a family that had been estranged for over 20 years? What were the results of their true repentance? Scene number three, we're gonna dip our toes into 45 because we have to. Scene number three, love opens the door. Love opens the door. This is 45, one through 15. Look with me at the first 15 verses here. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. And so no one stayed with him when Joseph made known himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it and Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. 
For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck, and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. <sighs> Been waiting for this for like a month, right? Church, the brothers' repentance was was real. The brother's repentance was not a political relations stunt. It was not a PR stunt to save face. Well, mistakes were made. No. They had been transformed. They had been changed from being self-centered, self-preservationists. Changed into loving, self-sacrificial, whatever it takes to make this right, men. God had brought about this change. So what then were the results of their true repentance? In this situation, what are the results of their true repentance? Forgiveness and reconciliation. First, we see forgiveness. In verses four and five, Joseph does not, it's important to note, Joseph does not ignore their sin. He doesn't sweep their sin into the carpet. He doesn't act like they didn't do anything wrong. No, he names it. I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. You sold me here. Saying sorry does one thing. You don't have to really name the sin, but when you're asking for forgiveness or when you're forgiving, the sin is named. So he names the wrong, he names the sin, but he doesn't do it to rub it in their face. He brings it up again in order to forgive it. He doesn't hold their sin against them. And in forgiving his brothers, and this is true of forgiveness, in forgiving his brothers, Joseph absorbs the cost. I'll pay the debt that you owe me so that we can be reconciled. Forgiveness is always expensive. But after forgiveness, we see one more thing. We see, second of all, we see reconciliation. Now, remember, his brothers had been estranged and distant from him for 20 years, over 20 years. But notice what he says to his dismayed brothers in verse 5 after revealing his identity. He says, come near me. Come near to me, please. And they came near. And then after he urges them to pack, go, go get dad, pack up your bags, come to Egypt so we can all be together. 
in verse 14 tells us, he then fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept and he kissed his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. In the past, they couldn't say a word to him. Now they're talking. Now they're embracing. Now they're kissing. Now they're, now they're, they're reconciled. True repentance laid the groundwork for forgiveness. Costly forgiveness laid the groundwork for reconciliation. Now, I wish I could stand here and say that, listen, true repentance always leads to these joyful results. I wish I could say that. But we live in a fallen world. And Genesis offers us this unwavering hope. I think it's meant to inspire an unwavering hope in us. But Genesis is also not naive about the complexities that sin creates in a fallen world. Just remember the first seven responses to the question, what have you done, right? We are called as followers of Jesus to live peaceably with all insofar as it depends upon us. Sometimes we, need, we do all that we can to live at peace with, with, with somebody else, but we can't control their response. And in a fallen world, we have to wait for that true peace. But what, what we notice here is that love opens the door for the possibility, the true possibility, the true hope of forgiveness and reconciliation. Love opens the door when there's true repentance because in contrast to any worldly solution to conflict, any worldly promise of peace, it won't work. In contrast to the worldly solutions for peace, the power of God and the good news of the gospel makes peace possible through forgiveness and reconciliation and through what God has done for us in Christ. So when we look at conflicts between friends or neighbors, when we look at conflicts between nations like Palestine and Israel, and we look at the injustices that Israel has done against Palestine, the injustices that, that, that Israel has done against Palestine, and Palestine has done against Israel, and we're like, what's going to make peace? This has been a thousand years of conflict. Well, we can have one think tank and one politician and one solution, and all these worldly solutions might even seem really good. But at the end of the day, it's the Prince of Peace who will bring peace because he is the one who can, who can establish justice and make forgiveness and reconciliation possible through his son. That's our hope. And we want to tell the world about this hope. And we want to live this hope out. Friends, some of life's deepest pain and sorrow is caused by relationships being broken by sin and broken trust. You might be sitting in that pain right now. A friend who has stabbed you in the back. A church that has let you down. Parents estranged from children. Children estranged from parents, not talking. Marriages broken. In heartbreaking situations like these, it's easy to feel hopeless. But I think that God gives us Genesis 44 and 45 to call us to hope and to keep hoping and to not give up on hope. Because our hope is not based upon fickle, changing circumstances, and our hope is not based upon human goodness. <laughs> our hope 
is based upon the unchanging character of God. Our hope is based upon God being God Almighty. Isaiah 40, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint, nor does he grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And so, knowing that our God is good and wise, and knowing that our God in his power is, in his power is infinite, when, when life and, and reconciliation seem hope, seems hopeless, we look to God Almighty and we keep praying. We keep working. We keep hoping and waiting because our God is in the business of making new that which was broken. Our God is in the business of making one which was previously divided. And you might think, well, I don't know if I can do that. It is hard. But remember, when the prodigal son came to his senses, repented, turned around and came home to his father, hoping that maybe dad will just take me as a servant, the father ran to him, opened up his arms, opened the door, and welcomed him home. We are the prodigal. And so if God, our Father, ran to us in our repentance and opened the door to sinners like me and you, and we stand here today as reconciled sinners, now adopted children of God, if he can reconcile sinners like us to himself, he can reconcile the broken relationships that we grieve in our lives. And so we hold on to hope because we serve God Almighty. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your steadfast love and mercy and goodness and wisdom. We praise you for your infinite power. Father, we, we pray that you would open our eyes afresh to what you have done to reconcile us to yourself. Lord, we pray that we would walk in the light as you were in the light. Where we are in sin, that we would, you would grant us true repentance. Lord, if we've been sinned against, that we would wait upon you for change and believe that you can bring change in the lives of others. And Lord, however long that might be, may we never lose hope because our hope is in you. And we pray that you would bring about reconciliation and forgiveness and change in our lives, in our time. We want this, we ask you of this in our time. Even before Jesus comes back, we pray that you do that for your glory. Lord, show off your power, show off your, your unlimited strength to do that for our good and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.